0: You're listening to The Ultimate Sports Podcast, your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. On the podcast today, we have scientist Bob Pritchard, who has developed a coaching style based on a connective tissue system, which he says can drastically improve performance way beyond stretching and muscle-based training. A very warm welcome to my guest today, Bob Prichard. Bob, how are you doing, first of all?
1: I'm doing fine, uh, Sam.
0: How are you? Yeah, not too bad because you're the, in the times we're in. I'm not too sure what it's like where you are.
1: Uh, well, the air is full of smoke, uh, so we can't breathe. There, We're surrounded by fires, so the sky is red. But apart from that, everything is quite normal.
0: <laughs> yeah, there must be uh, pretty scary times for you over there. <laughs> That looking like the end of times when you see some of the photos anyway.
1: Well, not to mention we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I think we'll um, start off today by uh, just giving the listeners a bit of perspective on your background before we go into talking about how you help improve athletes performance.
1: Okay, so I started out about 50 years ago after I developed a new method to increase flexibility up to 600% beyond what People could get from stretching. And as the running boom was taking off at that time, I was mostly working with runners improving their hamstring flexibility. So in those days, I usually would work with somebody for an hour a week and they would come back following week and I would ask them how they're doing. And in some cases, they said, Well, I'm doing really well. I'm running a minute per, fi- per mile faster. And I said, well, that's impossible. Nobody runs a minute per mile faster. And one of them replied, well, you know, I'm not very bright, but I can time a five mile run. And my five mile run used to take me 40 minutes, but now it takes me 35. So I've gone an eight minute mile to a seven minute. And so I kind of shrugged and thought, well, you know, it must be something else or he's made a mistake. But then it kept happening over and over again. And I finally decided that, you know, I needed to know more about running. So I asked around town to see if there was a local running expert people could recommend. And several people recommended this local college track coach. So I went to visit him and I said, but can you tell me about uh, running? And he said, well, there are two things. There's cadence or turnover, uh, which is how fast you move your legs. And then there's stride length, how much ground you cover. And I said, well, you know, when I see runners around town or watch my runners run, they all look so different from each other. There must be more than two variables. And he said, well, that's what I know. And I said, well, do you have a book on the subject? He said, I do. So he reached up into his library, pulled down this 200-page book that said in big letters, Biomechanics of Running. I took it home, and I read the whole book. And in 200 pages, they said there were two things. There was cadence and stride length. At that point, I decided that I needed to do my own investigating. And since I had a science background, I was a uh, pre-med in uh, university, I decided to look for things that I could measure. So I had an eight millimeter film camera and I started filming my runners before I worked with them. And then as they went along and I would play the film back frame by frame to see what they were doing which was kind of a dicey proposition because if I stopped the film for too long, the heat of the projector would melt the film. So I had to look at a frame and then quickly move to the next one and the next one and the next one. Well, anyway, what I noticed was that there was a big change in how their uh, stride looked. And I decided since I was increasing their flexibility, I would try to measure the range of motion of their joints. And the first uh, one that I settled on was what I call the stride angle, which is the maximum opening between the front and trailing legs, usually at toe-off. And this is usually the common picture you see of runners from the side. They're pushing off from their toes and their knee is coming up. So what I discovered was that the bigger the increase in stride angle, the bigger the improvement in running speed of my runners. Well, since I knew which areas of the body were included in in this stride angle, I start, instead of just loosening up the hamstring, I also started loosening up other areas. And pretty soon, all of my runners were running a minute per mile faster. Then one day, I had a runner who came to me from Alaska. And I'm located down in San Francisco, so he had to travel quite a ways. And the reason that he came to see me was that whenever he ran, he had pain in his left knee. And uh, he was a smart guy. He was an engineer. And he had been to many doctors. And they, you know, tried different orthotics and gave him exercises and wrapped the knee. And nothing seemed to help. So he came to me and asked me if I could help him. And I said, well, I don't know. I'll just uh, put you on tape and see what I see. So as I did with all the other runners, I... At that time, he was using videotape, and I videotaped him from the side and couldn't see any difference in his stride on the left side or the right. So I decided to then videotape him as well from the front. So we went to the local track, and he would run toward me, and I would put him on tape, and we'd go back to the office. And I looked at it, and I noticed that his left leg moved more over to the white line than the right leg did. And since I was used to measuring things with a protractor, I just measured the angle of his leg when it landed on the ground and found that his left leg was crossing over seven degrees from the vertical, but his right was crossing over only three. So I thought that since this was the side that was having the injury, that maybe it had something to do with uh, what I call the crossover. So I pointed this out to him, and I said, let's go back to the track and see if you can run with both feet on either side of that white line. So we did, and he could only do it for two or three strides, and then he reverted back to what he was doing before. So because he was an intelligent guy, I knew that it wasn't a, quote, mental problem. In other words, it wasn't something that you could coach out of him. So I started looking to see if there were any differences, any and the physical differences between the two legs. Maybe the adductor muscles on the inside of the leg were tighter on that side than the other, but they weren't. Uh, they were the same length and everything else was the same. So I said, well, let me look at this tape tonight and see if I can see anything else. So he left and he came back the following morning. And that night, looking at the tape over and over again, I started to notice a difference in how his arms moved. So when he came in in the morning, I said, I think the problem is in your arms. And he said, well, my arms don't have any pain. <laughs> I said, well, I know they don't, but I think that's what's causing your knee pain. So I checked out his arms and what I discovered was that his left arm was an extension, moving the elbow back was much tighter than his right arm. So I knew that this was usually due to some tightness in the front of the chest around the shoulder. And I felt around, And I happened to feel a little bump on his collarbone. And so I said, when did you break your collarbone? And he said, well, how do you know I broke it? And I said, well, because you've got a little welding lump that happens when bones heal together. And he said, well, I broke my collarbone when I fell down when I was eight. But what does that have to do with my left knee? And I said, well, I think that's what's causing your left knee pain. I think that uh, microfibers have developed in the connective tissue, which they do whenever you have a broken bone and these limit the flexibility of the muscles, and that's why you're having pain in the left knee. So let's try this, and then we'll take you back to the track and see what happens. So I released microfibers around the clavicle and that area there. We went back to the, and his elbow extension improved, so it was the same as the the right. So we went back to the track and he ran again, and he said, I don't have any more knee pain. That's when I discovered another thing, which is that problems that athletes have do not necessarily come from problems close in that area, They yeah. they come from anywhere in the entire
0: system. Just for some context for the listeners. Yeah. When was this kind of happening? How many, how long ago? Oh, this is a long time ago. This was in the 1970s. And i guess in at that point. There was probably next to none research or anyone had ever looked into this kind of thing before.
1: No, not at all. No, everybody was looking at, in terms of running injuries, everybody was looking at the feet, everything they're caused by the feet. But recently, just recently, a few years ago, I read a paper that found a correlation between running injuries and what is called in the literature, step width. That is how close the foot lands to the center of the body when someone runs. And they found that the closer the foot lands toward the center, the higher rate of injury. So um, my discovery 50 years ago has been corroborated by uh, recent research. Of course, they have no idea that the step width is determined by shoulder flexibility. But anyway, that's what you get for trying to figure things out on your own. My uh, background was actually in science. Actually, I owe that to the Russians. When they sent up Sputnik, all of a sudden, there was a big interest in the United States in science education. So in seventh grade, I had my first science class, and that was the first subject in school that I really fell in love with. And I knew then that I was going to grow up to be a scientist but I had no idea that it would be in sports because actually in school, I was very good at sports. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So then I went to university and I was a pre-med student because I thought uh, I would go into medical research. Uh, My mother was a nurse and uh, actually my brother is a physician, so it kind of runs in the family. But somewhere along the line in university, I found I really didn't like diseases that much. And I was kind of more interested in health and learning and different things like that. And it was just um, actually just by accident that I developed this new way of uh, improving flexibility after I'd taken some dissection classes at university at another, or at a medical school. And by that time I had actually grown to love sports because I was playing tennis and I also uh, learned karate and later boxing and then got into cycling a lot and so I kind of combined the two and it just happened that I, I worked with runners because they were the people who who needed an improvement in their flexibility. Let me explain first, if I can say, about why I work with the connective tissue and why I release microfibers. And that is that the training for sports is primarily muscle-based. In other words, for the last 2,000 years, people have been training for sports by increasing their fitness, their strength, and also doing stretching. So here's what the problem is with basing your sports performance on your muscle. And this is something that your coaches won't or trainers won't tell you, but muscles are only 20% efficient. In other words, one fifth of their energy is dedicated to moving you and four fifths of it is just producing heat. In other words, your Muscles produce a lot more heat than movement when you, whenever you're involved in a sport. And basically, this would be like hiring somebody who only completes uh, one-fifth the work or uh, hiring an Uber driver who only gets you to your destination one-fifth of the time. The other four-fifths of the time, he's driving around town warming up his car engine. Basically, the problems with muscles. And as a result of that, you have to overtrain way overtrain in order to get any improvement in your performance i was looking for instance at the uh, the best marathon runner in the united states and over the last 3 years he's only improved his running time by 2% and of course he's running he's training 100 miles a week and for that it's only getting a 2% improvement over 3 years So muscles are, by their very nature, very inefficient. It turns out there are other systems in the body that are far more efficient, and one of them is the connective tissue system. The connective tissue system makes up 20% of our body weight, but it's a system that people know very little about simply because it doesn't have any beginning or end. It's a system of interconnected tissue membranes that cover each and every one of our 600 muscles so that inside of our body, no two muscles actually touch each other. It's always membrane upon membrane. So you never see a wall chart up in your doctor's office or your coach's office showing the connected tissue system. What you see is you see a chart showing all the muscles and then another one showing all the bones. And so you think, well, I'm made of muscles and bones. And, you know, that there's a brain there somewhere and a nervous system. So basically, th- those are the three systems that you think you have to work with. Well, it turns out that this connected tissue system is far more important as far as performance is concerned, because unlike muscles, it's 100% efficient. In other words, whenever you damage a muscle by overusing it, training too much, running, you know, hundreds of miles a week, 100 miles a week, or lifting a lot of weights, or getting elbowed in soccer, or falling on the pitch, all of these things tears thousands of the 20 to 50,000 muscle fibers that make up each muscle. So what happens when you tear fibers in the body? Well, the body starts to create scar tissue in order to facilitate healing, create scar tissue not only within the muscle, but more importantly, in between the connective tissue membranes that surround the muscle. So you have small fibers that come out of one layer and lock together with fibers from another, and that basically prevents the muscles from sliding past each other, which they have to do in order to stretch or contract. This immobilizes the area that's had the damage. In other words, it's nature's internal camp. Now, while it's very effective, the problem is nature never figured out how to get rid of these microfibers once they form, and they tend to slowly accumulate over time, which is why athletes and everybody else get stiffer as they get older. And because, of course, as athletes suffer more muscle damage than anybody else, their careers are usually much shorter, usually only 10 years at best, and uh, maybe For those who don't lift weights or don't readily form microfibers or form them less readily than others, it might even extend to 20 years, but certainly not the 50-year careers that people have aren't constantly entering their muscle. So these microfibers do exist. When I release them, people immediately see and feel an increase in their flexibility. And oftentimes in areas where stretching has just not produced any results. I remember one triathlete who came to see me who had developed uh, back pain. And uh, his orthopedist and physical therapist told him that his hamstrings were tight. He needed to stretch them. So he stretched them for an hour every day for six months with no improvement at all. And somehow heard about me and called me up and told me what was going on. And I said, well, I think I may be able to help you if you can just come into my office and we'll work for one day and uh, let's see what we do. He was very skeptical, but he came in anyway. And in that first day, he increased his hamstring way beyond what he'd been able to do in stretching. And in one week, we actually uh, doubled his hamstring flexibility from 60 degrees to 120 degrees and of course, that was the end of his back
0: pain. Yeah. What is it you're actually doing when you're doing this? Obviously, doing far more than stretching would, but what, what are you doing to his body? Oh, yeah. What
1: we do is we do uh, microfiber reduction, which is a special form of connective tissue massage. In other words, while most people doing massage work on the muscles, we actually work in between
0: them. Uh, so it is, it is a form of massage in the body, essentially.
1: It's a form of a special form of connective tissue massage. Yeah. Okay. And athletes and other people can tell that they have microfibers because when they do stretch, they find that they don't get much improvement or very little improvement. Now, for an elite athlete, it can be the difference between being the best in the world and being ranked uh, 113th in the world. And a good example is Callum Hawkins, the uh, well-known British marathoner, in fact, the best marathoner in Britain. And he's ranked right now 113th in the world. And he trains about a hundred miles or so a week. So over a course of a few years, he'll run once around the earth, but he's also not only very stiff, his stride angle is small, but he also bounces up and down 50% more than the East Africans who are all faster than either. And of course, nobody notices this because you know, everybody bounces up and down a little bit. You know, when you look at him, his three inch bounce doesn't seem like uh, very much, but when you realize that runners take a thousand strides a mile and he's going up three inches and then dropping down three inches with each stride, it actually adds up to 2.48 vertical miles. So for him, the marathon is not 26.2 miles. It's actually two and a half miles longer. And he doesn't get paid for that extra distance. <laughs> so once we release the microfibers, so the flexibility is better, then we work with mechanical efficiency. That is how they move. And over a period of four weeks, we can reduce bounce in marathon runners from three inches down to half an inch, which is exactly the same amount that you bounce when you're walking. Now, I discovered this, or actually it was verified for me uh, many years ago in 1992, when I was hired by NBC Sports here in the United States to analyze the men's marathon for the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. And uh, they flew me over there and uh, gave me a nice little editing room. And then during the race, I would on a little side monitor be playing the runner's strides frame by frame and measuring what they were doing. So at the halfway mark, uh, I predicted the winner. I correctly predicted the winner because he was the most efficient runner in the lead pack. But for me, the highlight of my stay in Barcelona was this enormous tape library that NBC had put together of all the major sporting events for the prior five years, all the Olympic sporting events, so that producers could put together a backstory and show the history of, of, of each athlete. And so I had always wanted to see a video of the 1988 Rotterdam Marathon, which was won by and Densimo, a uh, Ethiopian, with a time of two six fifty, a record that lasted for 10 years. I'd always wanted to see it, not because of his time or the fact that he won but a statement he made at the finish line when he was being interviewed he said i feel like i could run another 5 miles now if you've ever watched the end of a marathon you notice that most of these guys collapse at the end of the race yeah. they certainly don't look or and you know i've been watching marathon <laughs> for you know 50 years And I've never heard anybody else say, I feel like I could run another five miles. (laughs) So I knew he had to do something very different from everyone else in the history of marathon. But I didn't know what it was because I couldn't see the video because someone in Holland bought up the rights and for some reason embargoed the video so nobody could see it. But fortunately for me and my runners, NBC Sports somehow got hold of a copy. So I went to the Tape library, and I said to the librarian, You don't by any chance happen to have a copy of the 1988 Rotterdam Marathon. So he said, Well, let me take a look. So this was in the pre computer days. So he flipped mm-hmm. open his index book and he said, Oh, yeah, we do have a copy. And I said, Do you mind if I take a look at it? And he said, No problem. When do you want it? I said, Is now okay? He said, Sure. He goes back in the library, comes out, and hands me this huge tape. Now these tapes are three quarters of an inch wide, so they're big. So I took it back to the editing room ran it through the marathon to the end where the cameras finally focused in on the lead guy, Glendon Simo. And I measured his stride mechanics, his stride angle, his crossover and so forth. And they were all pretty much exactly like other East African runners, but there was one enormous difference. And that is that he was bouncing up and down, not three inches, not two inches, but just one half inch. So he was not running an extra two and a half miles, and what that told me was that the marathon is fatiguing not because of its horizontal length, not the 26.2 miles, but the vertical distance that people run, and of course, because Western and Japanese runners run a much higher mountain than the East Africans, they're way behind them, and it's why the East Africans dominate the top 400 times in the marathon. So on my way back from Barcelona, I stopped off in New York and talked to Fred Liebold, who was the guy who started the New York City Marathon. And I told him what I saw in on that tape. And I said, you know, Fred, I think I can get somebody to complete New York in under two hours. Now realize this was back in 1992. And to my surprise, Fred said, I think somebody can do it too. He said, how do we go about it? And I said, well, we need to offer a prize, and uh, we need to get the word out to the mar- top marathoners in the United States. And He said, "Well, let me look into it and I'll call you back." So I flew home to San Francisco area. and a week later he calls me up and he said, "Well, my insurance company is convinced that nobody can do it, so they're willing to put up a million dollar prize. And I've got a list I can send you of the top well marathoners. And uh, you send me some information. And let's see if we can t- find somebody to do it. So I did that. I, I mailed them information on what I do and a video working with a runner. And not a single one even responded. I think they were so convinced that nobody could do this, that you know it was a complete pie in the sky, even though there was a million dollar prize, that they weren't even interested in trying. And since then, for the last 25 years, I just haven't been able to convince an elite marathoner to try this, even though I've easily been able to convince elite swimmers and golfers and soccer players and rowers to work with me. And honestly, I think a big part of the problem is that in all these other sports, There's a tradition of learning. In other words, you have to learn how to play golf. You have to learn how to swim, but you don't have to learn how to run. You just go out and uh, put your shoes on and just run, you know. And when coaches have tried to change what runners do, they've always made things worse because they don't realize that the reason that runners are inefficient is primarily physical and not mental.
0: That's crazy to hear that, though. That obviously you can get it on all the other sports, but not with the runners. Say you could do it hypothetically. Oh, so, if I could. Oh, yeah. I How quick?
1: Get in four weeks, he could be running under two hours. That's mental. Well, think about it. Okay, so right now his his time is about two o eight. Okay. Yeah. So let's look at what Simo did just by reducing his bounce. So in 1987, his best time was about 2.12. And in, when he reduced his bounce to half an inch, his best time was 2.07. He dropped five minutes by reducing his bounce, okay? So yeah. if we take five minutes off of Callum Hawkins time, he'd be running 2.03, okay? And then all we need to do is increase his stride angle, which is now very low. Just increase it to 100 degrees. And he could easily drop another few minutes and and be running under two hours. I estimate that he could actually be running uh, 157.
0: That's crazy.
1: He's had a problem in the past with overheating. Since it's his muscles that are producing all of this heat, in pushing him up a mile and a quarter and <laughs> dropping him back down a mile and a quarter, then, of course, he wouldn't have a problem with
0: overheating. I mean, I'm stunned. Obviously, I've just learned something new as well as what you're saying of why um, the East African runners tend to be quicker. In terms of Kipchoge, yeah. Say with the right, say if he used to work with someone like yourself and had the right training, et cetera, how quick do you reckon he could get his time down to obviously he did run a under two hour marathon last year, wasn't it?
1: Well, you know, it was not really a flat. A under a two hour marathon because, you know, he had all these runners protecting yeah. the wind. And it was run in a place that had lots of trees that were breaking the wind and it was under ideal conditions. So nobody in a real race has run under two hours. And this is uh, this is the conclusion of the World Athletics Organization, which keeps trackable of these records. So nobody's broken two hours yet. Maybe that this weekend, somebody might do it at London. We don't know, but nobody's done it yet. So how fast could Kipchoge run? uh well first of all he does bounce two inches so we could we could get that down to half an inch which means he drop about five minutes off his current time
0: wow it's just so weird to hear it when you, the athletes well runners aren't willing to work with you as you say yeah. that's just how <laughs> it is <laughs>
1: and think of how much money more money they would be making you know if they uh, yeah. if they were if they were regularly running under two hours think Become of all a celebrity they, they'd be a big celebrity their sponsors would pay them millions of dollars They would uh, win other hundreds of thousands of dollars winning races. And of course, it would be much easier on their body. It would extend their running career by another, at least another five years, maybe 10.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's bizarre. But, you
1: know, running is so muscle centered. You know, it's all about endurance, which is basically the heart muscle. You have to run and run and run and run in order to tax the heart. And the heart responds by muscles getting bigger and stronger, marathon runners have a heart that's 50% larger than normal, in addition to which they are usually very small guys and weigh very little. And of course, other people can run and run and run and their heart doesn't get any bigger, but they can lift weights and their skeletal muscles get big. So they tend to go into sports that are benefiting from strength. But in both cases, they're limited by this 20% efficiency thing. And oftentimes, working on strength creates so many scar tissues, so many microfibers that their performance gets worse. I noticed many years ago, for instance, as other people did, that the New York Yankees, which has the biggest salary in baseball, would hire really good pitchers and bring them on their team. And in just a year or so, their pitching would get worse. And so the common idea was, well, you know, these guys are making so much money now, they don't try hard. Well, I know competitive athletes and no amount of money is going to (laughs) convince them to not try harder. (laughs) So what I did is I went through and I collected photographs and videos of their stride angle before they were hired by the Yankees and then afterwards. And in every single case, their stride angle got smaller. Well, the stride angle is very also very important in pitching because what you're doing in pitching is that you're hurdling your entire body mass toward the pitcher and suddenly putting your foot down, putting the brakes on on your lower body and that whips your upper body forward toward the plate accelerating the ball, okay? Now, if you look at historically great pitchers, what what they all have in common is that they have huge stride angles. Some of them, Tom Seaver had a stride angle of 135 degrees, you know, while runners have a stride angle of about 90 degrees. So what happens to pitchers that their stride angle gets smaller? Well, there's a a philosophy in strength training baseball pitchers that If you just use the weights on their lower body, because if you use too many weights on their arms, their arms will get in trouble. Well, these people don't realize that pitchers basically pitch with their legs and their hips, not with their arm at all. But in baseball, people have this saying, you know, well, this guy's got a great arm, you know, and that's this uh, disease of proxitis again, that the important things happen close to the act. But the arm is relatively unimportant in pitching. It's basically a mechanism to transmit the power of the legs and hips to the ball.
0: Yeah, same as in boxing, I guess. And it's exactly
1: the same in boxing. You've got that right. This is the thing I noticed about Muhammad Ali when he was boxing. What made him a great boxer? Before every single punch he delivered, whether it was a short jab or or a hook, it didn't matter. This guy rotated his hips first, and he and Joe Lewis are the only two heavyweights that I've seen who, who did this, and these are the two best heavyweights of all time.
0: It's staggering stuff. One thing I want to just ask about is, say, to take it back to the example of Callum Hawkins again, uh-huh. say he was to work with you, we've talked about before how he's doing X amount of training a week running X amount of miles would he still need to do that or could he be in a position where he perhaps doesn't need to train as much because he's doing this work with you
1: well he wouldn't need to train as much and and how much he would need to train I don't know but the other area that where I would work with him and all other runners is on their breathing because the thing the big difference I noticed between Western and Japanese runners and East Africans is that Western and Japanese runners all have very tight chest. You can see this from the side, that depth of their chest is just not very big from front to back. But you look at elite East African runners like Kipchoge, or you see they have very big chests from front to back. And when when the chest is tight, it prevents the lungs from expanding. I worked with a a college golfer uh, some years ago who came to me who had just two inches of chest expansion and after I doubled his chest expansion his lung capacity increased the full 33 percent his lung capacity went from 3.22 liters to 4.3 liters which means that he was taking in with every breath that he took 33 percent more oxygen well just imagine what this would do for a runner
0: yeah people were until recently really focused enough on I guess that's parallels of some of your research it goes back to the uh idea of proxitis yeah
1: in other words running is not all about the feet yeah (laughs) (laughs) in fact years ago i saw a film of a guy who completed a marathon without any feet at all he somehow lost he somehow lost both feet in the war but he was determined to get back into running which he loved to do and he somehow trained himself to run just on the end of his legs he didn't have any you know artificial feet or anything he just ran on the the bottoms of his lower legs he had some kind of cups built up so that they would cushion things and he trained himself to run a marathon
0: wow that's crazy that
1: the sports world is just not what people think it is
0: no definitely not i'm certainly learning that today Uh, (laughs) (laughs) obviously we've spoken a lot about runners primarily i just want to touch on some of the other athletes and Olympians that you've worked with. Oh,
1: okay. So let's talk a little bit about swimming. So I wrote this article on what I call upper body torque in runners for a magazine called The Runner. And it was a description of my work with this runner from Alaska, this engineer and how the arms were responsible for most running. Well, one of the subscribers to this magazine was the swimming coach at my alma mater, UC Berkeley, and he had one of the top swim teams in the world, and he was one of the best coaches, and he happened to read that article, and for exercise, for some reason, he didn't swim, but he liked to run, and he had developed a pain in his left knee, and so he went to the team orthopedist, and they couldn't help him, and the trainers couldn't help him, the podiatrist couldn't help him, and he happened to read this article about and he realized that he had been carrying his Walkman. This was pre-smartphone days. He'd been carrying his Walkman. He'd been carrying it in his left hand. And so what he did is he clipped it to his belt, and he went out for a run, and his knee pain disappeared. You know, well, so, so he didn't follow up in any other way. But a couple of years later, I was hired to work with a rowing team because they had developed back pain. And the sponsor of this team, which were mostly blue-collar guys from a local area, they were all rugby players. He convinced them to enter the Children's Hospital Bathtub Regatta, where you build your own boat out of scrap materials. And they won the Bathtub Regatta. And in doing so, they beat the UC Berkeley rowing team, which was one of the best rowing teams in the world. And so the Berkeley team said, You guys are really good, but I bet you can't beat us in a uh, real boat. And of course, if you know anything about rugby players, they love nothing more than a challenge. So they did go down to the Berkeley Rowing House in the Oakland Estuary. They got into two eight man boats, which are, by the way, very narrow and very long and very hard to balance. And they rowed for 2000 meters, which is the standard uh, racing length. And the Berkeley team only beat them by two boat lengths. And so this really impressed them. And they said to these guys, you know, you guys should really try out for the Olympics. This was in 1983, and the Olympics were coming up in 84. So the sponsor of the the rugby team, um, who was 58 years old and the next collegiate rower, got Olympic stars in his eyes and paid these guys to quit their carpentry jobs and plumbing jobs and just train twice a day. As, as rowers and they developed back pains, and they tried everything and nothing worked well this guy had so much money he even hired a PR firm and it turned out that one of my runners worked for this firm and I got him over his injuries by you know releasing microfibers and improving his mechanics and he said well you should talk to this guy Bob Pritchard you know so this guy calls me up and uh, I said well I need to I don't know anything about r- rowing but I need to videotape them and then uh, measured their flexibility and he said just send me the bill. <laughs> that was his favorite response to anything that I said. So I got a, my camera and went over and videotaped them rowing and then online I got videos of the world's best rowers and wh- the difference I noticed was that uh, when they went forward in the catch position the best rowers their shin bone was vertical and these guys never got to vertical. So I went through and I measured their ranges and I found they all had very stiff ankles probably from getting stepped on and twisted while playing rugby. I said to the guy, I said, I think I know what's causing the back problems and that is their ankles are stiff. And I said, I can loosen them up. And he said, well, just send me the bill. Okay. So these guys would come over to my office and they were of course all big guys and and they would kind of flop in my waiting room and I would take them into the workroom and we would release microfibers, and I loosened up their ankles and their back problems disappeared. And I tried to explain why I said, the reason this is going to help you is because you can't go as far forward in the catch position as you should. So then you have to reach with your back to get your oar in the water and pull with your back instead of pulling with your legs. They somehow didn't understand that. And so my nickname for the team was Dr. Voodoo because everybody else worked on their back and didn't get it better. And I didn't touch their back. I worked on their ankles and their back problems disappeared. So I called this guy up, the sponsor, and I said, You know, these guys have a lot of other problems that I could help them with. One of the things I noticed is, is their rib cages are really tight, probably from getting tackled in rugby and, and piled on and elbowed and stuff. He said, Just send me the bill. <laughs> so, you know, half of the team would come over. There was 10 on the team, half the team would come over one day and I would work on them, you know, one by one by one, and and then they would go back. And sure enough, they started beating collegiate rowers. Here they'd been, I'd worked with them for six months. I think they'd been training another four months. And so they had a a total of 10 months of rowing training and they were beating the top collegiate teams on the West Coast who had been training for eight years. And then they beat top collegiate teams on the East Coast who had also been training for eight years. And then he even flew his rowers to England at the head of the Thames, and they beat the top English rowing teams. And so in six months after I started working with them, they made the Olympic trials.
0: Wow.
1: And they unfortunately did not go to the Olympics because the coach that year thought that he could put together, instead of picking the, the best team, which would have been this group of rugby players, he thought he could put together his own boat of eight uh, rowers which, of course, everybody in rowing knows uh, doesn't work because the best rowing teams are the ones where the guys have been rowing together the longest because it's really a team sport where everybody is highly dependent on everybody else. And you have to have really good communication and be in sync with each other. But anyway, he uh, trained his own boat and they got the bronze medal at the following Olympics. And this group of rugby players in prior head-to-head competition had beaten both the gold and silver teams. Wow. So how much less training do you need to do when you've gotten rid of your microfibers and you're efficient? We don't know. It could be weeks instead of years. You know, we just don't know what it is. But anyway, it turned out at UC Berkeley that the rowing coach and the swimming coach have an office next to each other. And one day they bumped into each other and the swim coach said, what's up, or what's new? And he said, oh, well, we're working with this guy, Bob Pritchard, who uh, is an expert on flexibility and rowing. And he said, well, that's not the Bob Pritchard, is it? He said, well, I don't know if it's the Bob Pritchard, but <laughs> well, that's what his name is. And he said, well, because and he related reading the article in the Runner magazine and, the, and his knee pain, And he said, uh, can you get me in touch with this guy? And he said, yes. And so the swim coach called me up and he said, we'd like you to come over and um, talk to our team about the work that you So I went over and they had the entire team there, all the assistant coaches. And so I went through my dog and pony show. and, And he said, well, we'd like you to put together a stretching program for our team. And I can come up with a stretching program. He said, I've got a whole library full. So he gave me 20 tapes and I took them home. And I went through them frame by frame by frame. And what I found was about 25 ranges of motion that were critical to freestyle swimming. That's the stroke that I started with. And uh, just to make sure that I was on the right track, I went through and I measured everybody on his team. And I gave him a list of all of his swimmers from most flexible to least flexible. And I said, I'd like you to look at this list and tell me, if let me know if anything pops out of you. And he said, well, it's very simple our best swimmers are at the top and our worst swimmers are at the bottom. (laughs) It turned out that flexibility was far more important for swimming than either strength or endurance because, of course, all of these guys were lifting weights and, and, you know, they were swimming mega yardages at at the height of the season. They were doing 20,000 yards a day, 20,000 yards a day. These four guys were so tired that all they could do was swim, sleep and eat. They didn't even go to class anymore. So anyway, I gave them stretching program and they started working on their stretching. And I asked the coach if I could keep the tapes for a little while longer. And he said, sure, I don't need them. And so I went through and for a year and a half, I spent 20 hours a week examining the difference between world record holders and national record holders to see if there was any consistent difference. So like everybody, I thought people swam with their arms. So I looked at their arm movement patterns. And after months, I found there was no consistent difference. Well, the other thing that you do when you're swimming is kick your legs. So I looked at their leg kicks for several months and I could see no consistent difference. Well, because I was at the time working with tennis players and golfers and I knew hip rotation was important, I started looking at hip rotation and this is where the big difference was. World record holders were rotating their hips twice as far as everybody else, and they were rotating. So they, in fact, were also rotating them twice as fast, and in addition, they were also rotating them earlier in their stroke cycle. In other words, they, other swimmers were pulling first and rotating as an afterthought. These guys were rotating first and then pulling. So I called up a master swimmer, a guy in his 40s that I'd been working with on his flexibility, and I said, "Listen, I've got a new idea. I'd like to try it out at the. Can you meet me at the pool?" And he said, "Sure." You know? So I got a belt from my closet and a, and a rope from my garage, and I met him at the pool. And I said, "Let me have you just swim one length, and let me watch you." So he swam a length, and I counted his strokes, and had him put it on the belt, and I attached the the rope. I said, "Now just swim back and forth, and I'm just going to pull on your hips." So he did, and I would pull on his hips, so he would slowly keep rotating them more and more and more until he finally got up. He was rotating, I could see, just 30 degrees, and I finally got him up to 60, and then I had him stop. I put the rope underneath his body, and I said, now I'm going to give you some resistance, but I want you to rotate just as much as you were doing before. He said, okay, so he did, and I could feel the tug on the rope getting stronger and stronger, and so after about 20 minutes, I had him take off the belt, and I said, okay, swim a length for me, And he swam a length for me. And I said, how many strokes did you just take? And he said, well, I took 19. I said, well, how do you know? And he said, well, I always take 19. I always count my strokes. And I said, you just took 14 strokes. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. (laughs) I've never taken 14 strokes in my life. And I've been swimming for 20 years. And I said, well, don't take my word for it. Just go back down to the other end and count your stroke. And so, he swam down to the other end, counting his stroke, and the poor guy stubbed his fingers into the wall because he came up five strokes short. (laughs) So, in 20 minutes, this guy improved the distance of each stroke more in 20 minutes than he did in 20 years. Wow. And Uh if you go to uh, later on, I I developed a, um, uh, because I found hip rotation was so important, I developed a set of fins that you attach to the hips. Whereas most people put fins on the feet because of course you swim with your feet or they put big paddles on your hands because of course you swim with your hands. But I put the fins on the hips because I found out that swimmers swim with their hips. They don't swim with their arms and legs. And later when I had the coach measure the, the strength of the swimmers on the team, he found that his best swimmer who was a world record holder had ten percent less power output in his arms than any of the other sprinters. So all the work that they were doing, you know lifting weights and pull downs and swim benches and hand paddles, all of this was just a complete waste of time. But he did have this world record holder did have seventy percent more power output in his hip. So they were all training the wrong muscles. you know, other swimmers could never figure out why this guy was so fast. And then after I worked with him, he went on to win five gold medals at the Olympics because he somehow, his hip rotation dropped off just 15 degrees on one side, and he lost the 100-meter freestyle, which was his event, at the spring nationals. And his coach called me up and he said, something's happened to my best swimmer. I don't know what it is. Can you come over and take a look at him? And so I videotaped him underwater. And whereas before, he was rotating 60 degrees on each side, on just one side, his hip rotation had dropped down to 45. Well, this was still 50% better than everybody else, but it was you know 33% less than what he did before. So I worked with him over a couple of weeks and finally got him back to where he was before. His stroke cap was at 14, but after I improved his hip rotation, it dropped down to nine. He went to the Olympic trials, set a new world's record then went to the Olympics, won five gold medals, set another couple of world records.
0: Well, we're just going to start to wrap up now. One question to will be to kind of discuss what can the average runner do? Is someone that works a nine to five to improve their performance.
1: Ah, great question. OK, so luckily for runners everywhere, their smartphone is able to do slow motion video. So now it's possible to have somebody take your smartphone and just record your stride from the side. You want to hold the phone vertical and they just need to be able to get you from the feet up to the top of your head and they can just pan as you run by them. Then you want to run toward them and at the last minute pull off. And then you just download those videos into something like QuickTime, which is a video viewer. And the nice thing about QuickTime is that you can advance those videos videos frame by frame and you can start to analyze what it is that you're doing. So the most common faults that I see on Western runners is that they tend to lift their toes a lot when they run. Now, I think the reason for this is many distance runners come out of cross-country running where you're running uphill and downhill. Well, the problem with running downhill is basically you have to slow yourself down. And also, you have to pick up your toes so you don't trip. So you tend to learn to overstride. That's reach out with your heel way out in front of you to slow yourself down and lift your toes. And that's transferred to your running on streets, which are level. And the other thing that you do to slow yourself down in cross country when you're running downhill is you also lean back. So most Western runners have these three faults. They lean back too much and they reach out and land on their heel. That's why running shoes have these enormous heel pads. Well, if you can somehow learn to leaning forward a little bit more and at the last second before you land, pull your heel back, then you'll actually land with your foot underneath you. There'll be much less shock to your body and you'll start running faster with no additional effort. And then, of course, the other thing is that if you're, you look at yourself from the front and you're crossing over more than three degrees on either side, it's probably, and your shoulders are twisting and your arms are moving sideways, then you need to start working on your shoulder flexibility and doing some shoulder stretches. And that will reduce the tendency to develop injuries as a runner. So those are some simple things that any runner can do anywhere. And if you actually want to do more, we can now do our analysis and our initial work with runners. We can't do microfiber reduction, but we can do tension reduction and stress reduction. And our our stretches, which are much more effective than traditional stretches, we can do those now with anybody in the in the around the world.
0: Now we're just going to talk about your book, which is called Beyond Muscle.
1: This is coming out in the beginning of next year, and it's going to discuss we work on another system in the body, which is the connective tissue system, and we also work with the nervous system. Once we to improve mechanical efficiency, and of course, mechanical efficiency is also. efficient. This enables our athletes to improve their performance far beyond what any kind of muscle-based training does. And muscle-based training is basically what all athletes do. But I think that hopefully the time has come. I thought people would make the transition much earlier than this because, you know, I was doing this in the 1970s. So unfortunately, muscles have not gone away. And so finally, I decided, hey, I'm just going to do a book on this. I'm going to point out all the problems with muscles, how old-fashioned they are. And, you know, this is the era of disruption and new paradigms. And Mm -hmm. hopefully this will finally take some effect and people will start to think, well, you know, maybe there's something besides muscles that will help athletes improve their performance. And people can, if they want to, they can go to my website, which is somaxsports.com, and they can sign up for my newsletter. And then I'll send them an email when the uh, book is available and they can go purchase it and take a look at it. And they can also uh, actually learn a lot from looking at my website because I've got lots of videos and there are before and after photos of my athletes and see what they're running look like or their golf swing look like before i worked with them and then afterwards and uh, you can get a uh, real education about sports efficiency by uh, just going through those pages
0: brilliant stuff well i'll include links to uh, your website in the description i've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today bob thank you very much for coming on yeah thank you very much and thanks sam i appreciate it and for those listening we'll see you next time thank you for tuning into this episode Please follow us on any streaming services you use to listen to podcasts, and follow us on social media. Twitter is at Ultimate Sport P, and Instagram is The Ultimate Sports Podcast. So you don't miss any future sports news or guest episodes. And we'll see you next time.